podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Weck, and I'm here with the radioactive Eddie Matthews. How are you doing today, Eddie? I'm become death, the destroyer <laughs> of worlds. Best scene in the movie. <laughs> oh, we have to talk about that. We have to talk about that scene. We'll get to it. We can't start out there, but I guess Yeah, true. Fair enough. I, I mean, yeah. Okay, so we're talking about Oppenheimer today, the movie and the man, and uh, we have not really discussed the movie at all outside of this, so we're coming to you fresh, because we fresh. care about you, the rationalist listeners, more than anything in the world. So uh, <laughs> That's right. You, and that's, you could say. But however, I know it's been a long time since our last episode, but I will not apologize. Because on this podcast, we do not apologize, right, Morgan? <laughs> That's true. We do not apologize, uh, and we put off all of our uh, doubts onto Louis Strauss. We blame him for everything that we've done. So Strauss. keep that in mind. Strauss. Uh, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> I like how that's a whole thing in the movie. Uh, anyways. Um, yeah. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. The uh, lab director of the Manhattan Project. Um, yeah. Uh, where do we begin? I guess we could just begin where we pick up with him in the film. Yeah. I mean, do you want to do any overviews on like our background with Nolan or we want to wait till the Nolan discussion till the end after we go through? Kind of the I think let's give a kind of a quick, quick and dirty plot okay. synopsis of just the beats of the plot. Spoiler alert. Then... If you guys don't know about World War II, Turn away now. Come back. <laughs> Go read about World War II. Come back. And uh, we got some news for you. You're going to have your mind yeah. blown. So, Oppenheimer. Saw it in IMAX. Uh, came out a few weeks ago. Heck yeah. You see it in IMAX? I did as well, yes. It kind of had to, I kind of feel like, you know. I, was, I bought a ticket pretty early on. There's only like one IMAX right here. And to get a decent seat. I had to buy it like a month and a half in advance. Definitely worth it. I need to go see it again, but I am glad the first time was an IMAX at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of, there's a scene at the beginning of the movie and a scene at the end of the movie that kind of, you know, buttons the film um, where Oppenheimer's talking with uh, Einstein. Who was that other guy? Kind of... I didn't, uh, they didn't explore... <laughs> I've never heard of him. <laughs> Yeah, Albert, <laughs> Albert Einstein. Just to give our listeners an indication of who Oppenheimer is, there's a scene where, um, you know, someone who ends up kind of being the villain of the movie, Strauss, is kind of uh, walking him on the grounds of Princeton. And uh, he's like, oh, Albert Einstein's over there by the pond. You know, I can't introduce you to him. And Oppenheimer's like, uh, I know the guy. Uh, and he's like, well, yeah, he's the greatest scientist, you know, uh, of his generation. And then Oppenheimer responds, like, emphasizing his generation, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of the the intellect and the arrogance, I feel like, kind of wrapped up into a very, very short, kind of concise line. Um, so anyhow, that movie, you, or that scene kind of buttons both sides of the film where uh, we introduced to Oppenheimer in this conversation that he's having with Einstein about 
what they've just done. Cause, and then the rest of the movie is kind of this almost like flashbacks. We pick up with him when Oppenheimer's, you know, in his early twenties and studying in Germany. Um, I believe at this point, Oh no, sorry. Starting in Cambridge with the infamous poison apple scene. What happens there, Morgan? Right. Uh, he almost murders his teacher. Well, he actually almost murders Niels Bohr on accident uh, because he gets angry with the teacher calling him out for not being the greatest uh, kind of, what would you call it? Like an experimentalist. He's great at theoretical studies, but he's not as great at the experiments themselves. And so he can't go to Niels Bohr's lecture. And so he, po- he legitimately poisons an apple uh, that is left on the teacher's desk, professor's desk, and ends up having a, I don't know, it comes to his senses and runs in and just stops uh, Niels Bohr from, from taking a bite of the poisoned apple, which is, you know, I don't think that actually happened, but very metaphorical. <laughs> so he actually did try to poison his teacher. Um, but Niels Bohr wasn't about to like, you know, eat the apple in the movie. They have him have this like anxiety ridden night. And then he tries to get into the, to the class as early as possible in order to, you know, throw the apple away to make sure he actually doesn't kill his tutor. I don't think that's what happened. I think that somehow the apple just didn't get eaten and, you know, he confessed to like one of his friends and then it kind of became this thing and his dad protected him from any real ramifications other than having to see a therapist. Um, and this kind of, I think is a, I mean, I could be wrong, but from what I read about it, um, I don't think there's any like definitive proof that he rushed in to throw away the apple, you know, before his tutor could, could ever eat it. Um, and this kind of, I bring this up because I, I think this is a motif throughout the whole film of like Nolan kind of defending Oppenheimer or projecting him in a, in a, in a better light than I've would have anticipated, um, which is something we can kind of get into. But anyways, those there's Niels Bohr uh, is a really famous uh, scientist who's kind of visiting impressed by Oppenheimer tells him to go study in Germany, uh, which is where he gets his PhD. If you ever get a chance to read about Niels Bohr, fascinating guy his his like actual trip they mention it in the movie he makes a joke about having uh, taken off his helmet on the flight over but he like was like impossible to sneak past the nazis because he just wouldn't shut up the guy just had the biggest mouth (laughs) in the world and he, he legitimately had such a big head that they didn't have like actual military attire that would fit his his like head it was like three <laughs> times bigger than the average person's head. And he had to like have like specialty mechanisms built so he could fly on military planes. Interesting. You know, I'm just piecing together the irony of, you know, uh, Oppenheimer learning theoretical physics in Germany in the 20s, you know, yeah. and then 20 years later, basically overseeing a project that is designed to give the United States uh, government ultimate leverage over the Nazis um, is kind of, is quite fascinating. So he gets his PhD at an extremely young age, like, you know, early twenties, I believe um, in Germany and then uh, moves back stateside and uh, kind of essentially brings quantum physics to the U S 
there hadn't been any any uh, scientists like looking into it at that point and it's very theoretical like there's a scene where he kind of explains what a black hole is or like his theory behind it and writes a paper that gets published with the student and that would eventually go on i think after his death to be proven right like he discovered black holes i think he was the first person to to do so um with yeah i think they said like if he wasn't known as the father of the atomic bomb if that hadn't happened he'd be known as the father of the black hole that was his kind we of listened to the same scientific... podcast clearly i think we did <laughs> either that or we're both just very knowledgeable <laughs> we're extremely knowledgeable about this guy um so yeah it's interesting he comes back to the states uh, spends half the year teaching at Berkeley and half the year teaching at Caltech. In the movie, we see him getting involved in kind of uh, student demonstrations and among the faculty, communism is kind of a, a new ideology that's picking up steam among labor unions and such. And he kind of goes to meetings. He He dabbles in it, kind of provides space for it as kind of, intrigued by it but doesn't seem to be an active participant per se would you say that's accurate yeah i think he, um, he's just one of those people where he he was intellectually curious about a lot of different things yeah but he was never really a zealot for any one thing kind of throughout his life i yeah i actually wanted to talk to you about this too um because we see him at a, at a museum in Europe, I, I think it's in Germany at the time, he's looking at Picasso's and there's kind of this montage of him thinking about theoretical physics and just, you know, uh, very impressive kind of, I don't know what you would call them, um, light waves. And, you know, he's always just up in the middle of the night, chain smoking and eyes piercingly uh, looking into the dark kind of imagining all this stuff and then kind of art and music is the stuff he's consuming it all kind of like mingles together to form his worldview in a way and he is really expansive in his intellect he's like he goes and gives a lecture in netherlands and picks up dutch in like six weeks to give the lecture in the language of you know that's spoken in the in the netherlands at the time uh and still currently i hear <laughs> and so anyways i wanted to just bring up I don't think these people exist anymore, Morgan. These people who are like widely read, they know the classics, they're aware of the pre Prometheus myth and they uh, love Mozart and Beethoven and also are interested in the politics of the day with Marxism or communism or whatever it is. We'll go see a Picasso exhibit, but are also, you know, like brilliant in STEM completely with, you know, I, it just, it doesn't feel like as a culture, we're producing this type of individual anymore, you know? Well, I think there's part of it is that we've become so specialized in kind of the economy that it all reverberates from that, right? So I think today, if he wanted to be a professor at Berkeley or MIT or, you know, Oxford or wherever, you would pretty much, I mean, maybe in some extensive, you know, quantum theory or something but you would pretty much have to have some sort of very experimental specialty that would take a lot of time and would require you to not necessarily be able to read the classics or i mean i think these people do exist i just think that they aren't able to then 
also be influential people outside of that. So you can kind of choose between being a Renaissance man and having the influence that people in larger corporations or organizations do, but it's hard to do both. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, so, yeah, he's teaching at uh, Caltech in Berkeley, kind of uh, attending some of these kind of communist meetings, but is interested only as an intellectual would be really. Um, and then he meets, uh, well, a couple of kind of big things happen in, in this period of time. He meets Gene Tatlock, uh, who's kind of his, his first of fling that we see in the movie. Um, do you want to talk about your favorite scene? Or <laughs> I never said that. Never said it was my favorite scene. I said it was a memorable scene. You texted me during I, the movie. Because I, I love, I was like, dude, six Sanskrit reference. <laughs> love Sanskrit. <laughs> Couldn't Anyways, tell what was going on. We meet Gene Tatlock and they have about a... a 60 to 120 second conversation and then just immediately are boning uh she's uh astride our protagonist and then goes over to his bookcase and takes a book of sanskrit off the shelf opens it to a random page remounts our protagonist and then tells him to start reading sanskrit and he says, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, where she's pointing to on the page. Exactly how it happened. Which is exactly historically <laughs> accurate. Yeah, I mean, it was, that is a choice. Nolan doesn't, he's not known for that. I thought that was very un-Nolan, Mike, because, I mean, that is pretty much, if, for people who know like three things about Oppenheimer, I feel like that quote is one of those three things. So to put it in that context, very early on in the movie was something else. I know some people really didn't like it. I thought it was a, it's an interesting way of getting around it while integrating it into the plot. We call that sex position. <laughs> nice, nice, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tried and true Game of Thrones yeah trope, you know. Indeed. Um. So yeah, Gene Tatlock is kind of this, it's it's a fling, but more than a fling. They know they're not right for each other, but they're kind of soulmates in a way, you know? They have a they have a codependency um, that kind of recurs throughout the movie. Uh, and then another major event that happens when he is uh, teaching is that, you know, front page of the news, one day someone comes in and says, the Germans figured out how to split an atom. And uh, Oppenheimer's like, that's impossible. And then he does the equation on the whiteboard and I think proves it wrong, but then somehow is like, well, no, they must have done it. And then just just is uh, perplexed by this, you know, phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, the guy comes in from next door after he solves it and says, well, we just did it here. We just Right, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Josh Hartnett. There was a Josh Hartnett sighting. First time in 20 years. He was He was legitimately great in this. I thought he was excellent. I thought he was good. There yeah. was only one weak point of the the movie in terms of the cast. I mean, there were many weak points. Well, I won't get into that. Save it. You know, save it. Save it. I'll save it. Um, so yeah, he. There's kind of a a good juxtaposition, you know, in terms of their classrooms. So his class is all theoretical physics. All of his students are, you know, talking through 
how a star can explode and gravity can suck it up in a, they're never going to actually see this happen, of course, but they can prove it with theory and with math, but then down the hall is it's kind of more pragmatic science where they're, you know, splitting atoms and actually have the infrastructure to like test things, you know? And mm -hmm. so there's kind of this, this healthy tension or a healthy kind of rivalry and friendship between the, pragmatic scientists and the theoretical scientists and Josh Hartnett is the pragmatic scientist. Right. Um, so that kind of starts him on, well, there's a line in the movie where he says, you know, every, basically every, every physicist is thinking the same thing when they see this news and someone, someone says like, what? And it's like, you know, building a bomb. Um, Cause at this point we are, you know, gearing up towards World War II, but it hasn't commenced uh, yet. Is that, would that be uh, accurate to say? Um, I think at this point, the war has started. It's just the uh, U.S. isn't in the war yet at this point. Okay. No. Um, and so essentially this kind of dovetails with around the time that Einstein sends a letter to President Roosevelt, which is a, a factual uh, historical event. Um, the letter was sent in uh, August of 1939. And uh, Einstein's basically telling President Roosevelt, like, hey, we need to build a bomb. And here's how you would do it. Um, and so Oppenheimer kind of thinking the same thing um, is part of this small network of scientists who all know each other, who could be capable of building an atomic weapon and figuring out the science behind how to do it and, and how to actually get the plutonium and uranium and, and such to figure out, you know, the, the engineering side, but also the theory and the physics side, because they're building something that's never been built before, but also it's very much an engineering project. Um, so anyhow, in walks Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt Damon. General Groves, who is kind of the, um, you know, military figure put in charge of designing uh, the Manhattan Project and all of the infrastructure and has the purse strings to kind of put this on. And he comes and more or less recruits Oppenheimer to lead this project and... He says, uh, you know, everyone tells me you're an egotist, you're a womanizer, you're brilliant, you're arrogant. And can I just say, when I was watching this scene, I never felt so many parallels to my life <laughs> and so seen by somebody else than when he was listing these attributes, you know? I was also thinking- Some of which I'm not proud like, of. How did, how did you get into this movie? And, uh, and so basically Groves is like roasting him, but still hires him because uh, for whatever reason, he sees the potential or sees the, you know, indelible qualities that uh, Oppenheimer has that, that no one else seems to, to be able to do this project. And Oppenheimer gives him like a, like a heavy pitch on how he can do it, how he knows exactly how to run a project of this uh, size and magnitude and advises let's go to the desert in New Mexico, which Oppenheimer actually 
you know, even though he grew up in New York, his family had a ranch in New Mexico that they would kind of go back to. And so it's, I imagine that's one of the reasons why New Mexico kind of jumped to his mind other than obviously there being just thousands of acres of space and then kind of the central point between these different hubs that they had established um, that they needed like different scientists at to, you know, both extract, like mine, the, the pure resources that they would need. And then also kind of like test it at the Chicago lab and all these kinds of things. So he says, we'll build a, we'll build a town in New Mexico, recruit the best scientists, you know, put together a team of people and just, uh, yeah, I'm your man. I think, yeah, Les, I mean, Leslie Groves is probably the second most responsible for the atomic bomb. Uh-huh. I think there's a very like a different retelling of these stories and history where he is seen as the father of the atomic bomb. I, I think he gets a you know short and maybe he enjoys that uh, anonymity, but uh, he did I think a lot more than people usually give him credit for in this whole process. Yeah, can I tell can I tell you my least favorite line of the whole movie? <laughs> yes, what was it? So Groves and Oppenheimer are kind of going around the country recruiting scientists to join the Manhattan Project. And uh, they go to some kind of like unnamed scientist at some random university and they catch him coming out of class. And they're pitching him on the Manhattan Project and joining it. And this guy's like, why would I move to the desert and take my family out there and do this? And uh, Leslie Groves, a.k.a. Matt Damon, goes, Why? How about because it's the most important thing in the history of the world? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> Only one person would write a line like that, you know? Indeed, indeed. Um, so that's kind of uh, there's there's a few scenes where we get Oppenheimer kind of doing some of this recruiting, and then you see this town kind of being built more or less overnight with. Uh, you know, a church and a post office and houses. Um, kind of looks like an old West town. There's kind of reference to Oppenheimer. Someone says he's like, what is he, like the sheriff and the mayor and something else all rolled into one of this kind of old West town. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and then you see them start to construct uh, and just go through the just the engineering phases of putting this bomb together. Um yeah. Do you want to talk about the kind of intercut scenes with uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character and how those kind of start to intersplice midway, midway-ish through the movie? Yeah, I mean, this is probably the most controversial in terms of the reviewing aspect of the movie is that there's a parallel structure, which obviously no one loves. Nothing, Nobody loves messing with time in movies more than Chris, Chris Nolan. Uh, and so mm-hmm. this is this version of this. Uh, I think the interesting part is that the future is displayed in black and white. Um, kind of more of a, it seems like a kind of an homage to like lawyer and law dramas. Um, mm-hmm. But it's more about, starts off with it being about kind of the transition to the post-war period and kind of the role of Oppenheimer as the father of the bomb and in the context of the Cold War rather than World War II, uh, which obviously brings back his communist dalliances from the beginning of the movie uh, and the beginning of his life. 
and the introduction of the character of Louis Strauss, who is, yeah, you say he's the antagonist. I think he is definitely the antagonist, but in kind of an odd um, role as sort of the juxtaposition, I think, to Oppenheimer and seen as pretty much displayed as like an evil conniving politician, more or less. Um, and I think Robert Downey Jr. was terrific in that role. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, and it becomes pretty much the whole final third of the movie, which is an interesting choice, but we can, we can get back to that at the end. Yeah. Just a couple of great things on Strauss. He was the, uh, one of the founding members of the U S atomic energy commission. Um, kind of, uh, you know, part of the top brass of the government in terms of the arms race, one might say, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, so, yeah, you have these scenes kind of start to become interspersed into, as we get into the production of the bomb, and um, especially towards the latter stages of it, you have these kind of reflections from Strauss on Oppenheimer. And I think it's uh, much has been made and like written and just talked about. So I, I think it's fair to say that the stuff that's in color, that's kind of contemporaneous with what you see for the first half of the film or, you know, first two hours-ish is from Oppenheimer's perspective. So it's like a subjective kind of experience through Oppenheimer's eyes. Um, and that part's in color. And then this kind of courtroom drama is in black and white that uh, Morgan just referenced. Um where Strauss kind of comes in and, and uh, yeah. And then, so anyhow, they're putting this bomb together and recruiting more and more and more people. We get these kind of scenes of these physicists debating about how to do it. Um, we get this, these two kind of like goldfish bowls of uh, that are filled with marbles and we see them fill up with marbles and then each marble kind of represents uh, uranium and plutonium, I, I believe, which are the raw materials that they need. And so as they kind of, you know, get more and more of those raw materials, then they're actually getting closer and closer to being able to test this thing. Um, I believe it's one or the other. They, they, so basically what happened was because the U.S. invested so many resources into the bomb, uh, because they thought the Germans were ahead, they knew that one of about four options would work but they weren't sure which one and so leslie groves just said screw it let's do all four and so the they ended up kind of pursuing four different avenues to create the bomb and the two primary ones were uranium and plutonium and so that was kind of the the central signaling device yeah and um yeah so you kind of see this cast of characters kind of come together um Oppenheimer uh, gets married to, or he marries eventually the, the wife of one, one of the other kind of scientists in this network uh, that he meets at kind of a dinner party at uh, Berkeley. Um, so she's, you know, at this point, his wife and they have kids uh, out in the middle of nowhere in um, Los Alamos, the name of the, this town that they created in New Mexico. Uh, so she's played by Emily Blunt. She doesn't really have much to do until the last like half hour of the movie when she testifies for Oppenheimer's character, um, which we can talk about. Um, and so Oppenheimer's kind of leading this whole 
project, managing all the egos, managing the production, uh, kind of navigating some of the moral questions that are starting to crop up once they get closer and closer to actually completing this thing and figuring out the amount of death that they're, that's going to, it's going to be used for. So uh, some of the scientists kind of pulled a town hall about, you know, the ethics behind it, um, which he kind of presides over. And um, this whole time he's pretty single-minded in this engineering project and unwavering in terms of how he feels about what they're do, what they're to do, the mission. He's like, we have to do it first because otherwise the Nazis will figure it out first and we just can't have Hitler with an atomic bomb. So I think that kind of simplifies it for him um, just as a person and like keeps the whole team kind of focused on getting to the goal. And then uh, eventually we get to the, the Trinity test, which is when um, they actually do it. I feel like in the, in the weeks leading up to that, uh, he, Gene Tatlock, uh, calls him and says like I need him and then they they bone again here's the thing about Oppenheimer he fucks you know <laughs> he does he might have been split on a lot of things but fucking was not one of them that no. guy was pro fucking so loves to fuck yeah. so, <laughs> there's another scene where she he like I don't know if I think he's on some sort of recruiting trip or something but he's like back in the Bay Area and meets up with her and then she basically tells him, I need you. And at this point, he has Groves being like, you got to cut all ties. He's like, I know, I've read your file. I know about these kind of communist friendships you have. You have to cut ties with all of these commies. And Oppenheimer's was like, all right, I will. And so uh, he meets up with Talik one more time. They have sex. And then in the post-coital conversation, he says, sorry, like, uh, we can't do this anymore. Um, I care about you, but uh, this is it. And she's like, but I need you, blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, no. And then she kills herself uh, maybe some weeks or months after that. And uh, then I think there's some ambiguity even about that. Was she? Did she kill herself? Was she murdered? Um, I read that in a review of the movie, so I'm, I'm not totally sure on the details of that. But um, Oppenheimer kind of blames himself and like carries that guilt and is kind of tore up uh, for a while. And then um, his wife is just trying to pull him back to earth and saying, there's so many people here that need you, like stop feeling sorry for yourself kind of thing. And then uh, I think soon after that is when they do the Trinity test where they, they test the bomb. What did you think of the, the spectacle? Because that's pretty much the only real spectacle in the film. Yeah, um, I think I didn't really know what to expect with this movie. Uh, I watched all the trailers and stuff, but I didn't read any reviews or anything before watching it. So I didn't really know what the structure of it was going to be. It kind of turns out that this Trinity test is what more or less the film was culminating in and leading up to. And then the last hour is kind of the, you know, falling action or denouement of the movie and when it kind of turns into that courtroom drama piece uh, with the Louis Strauss stuff, which we'll talk about. Um, so they kind of build this hundreds, multi hundred foot tower and then load the bomb up there. And then it's all stormy and uh, Oppenheimer, you know, is saying, I know this place, the storm's going to clear up. We can still do the test tonight. 
they're really under a time pressure because there's a kind of a conference where uh, Roosevelt kind of needs to know before this specific date whether they can actually they actually have an atomic bomb or not. So Groves is really pressing Oppenheimer to get it done. Um, so Oppenheimer reads the skies like Nikita Mazepin on nice. an F1 racetrack. <laughs> That's a real deep cut, and uh, Mazepin obviously is uh, a joke. That's there's. There's maybe I think you're the only person actually that's going to get that reference. So <laughs> sorry, <laughs> listeners. I thought we explained it afterwards to make it even more specific. Yeah. So uh, it turns out the storm does abate uh, like 4 a.m. or something, like right in time to do the test. They uh, do the test, load the bomb up, um, middle of the night, kind of pitch dark, and uh, drop it, plume of fire, and then about 20 seconds later is like the huge just like you know chest pumping sound uh takes that long to to you know traverse the space to actually reach them as they're watching it um yeah i mean filmmaking wise visually it was stunning uh i don't there's not really anything for me to say other than like yeah i guess we've seen it before unfortunately yeah true um so that kind of is basically it's this weird moment because they're they're cheering like it's the fourth of July afterward because they did it and they know how to do it and they can produce you know so then they make two of them and then there's a scene shortly thereafter where they kind of ship them off and everyone's cheering and being like this is great we're like we're gonna put a stop to this and and in this time you know uh, Germany folds you know bunker hitler bang dead so the war's sort of over but not there's still japan holding out on the pacific theater so there's kind of this weird moment where the enemy that they were building this bomb as a deterrent primarily against is no longer a threat and so those scientists who built this you know means of destruction are now handing it off to you know, Groves and the military, and they're all like, we got it from here, buddy. Now you're concerned, you know? Right. And then, uh, yeah, there's kind of this kind of back and forth with Washington about how to use it. Do they do a test, you know, in the Pacific Ocean to, like, show the Japanese, hey, we have this weapon. Check out, you know, how much damage it could do if we dropped in the Pacific Ocean. And then eventually the top brass are like, no, we're going to pick these two cities, you know, from a list and uh, actually drop it with the anticipation of this will cripple, you know, the Japanese so much. It was actually a really tragic moment where they're like, why don't we pick a military target? And basically the, the top military brass are like, there's no military target big enough that, you know, this bomb yeah. would be effective on. Like this bomb's mm-hmm. too damn big that we have to do some sort of civilian target because, you know, Otherwise, there won't be the impact that we're needing it to have. So we never see actually footage, real life or recreated footage of the bomb actually being dropped on Hiroshima or Nagasaki um, or the devastation it does. We, we get this kind of weird town hall scene where it's like a pep rally and Oppenheimer is doing the kind of like rah, rah, go America, we did it. 
and then is having these like hallucinations of you know people's faces being melted off and charred bodies um and then you kind of see Killian Murphy in one of the best performances maybe I've ever seen ever just viscerally embodying the pain of the realization of what he's done but even though that is such a transcendent performance I didn't necessarily get that as an audience um which I promise we're almost done with this plot synopsis and we can actually get into what we thought of the movie um so we have that and then yeah take us through the kind of courtroom drama part of it Morgan yeah, I mean, I think the this has been the most controversial portion in terms of the actual review uh, because people seem to think that it peaked, you know, with the Trinity test and the kind of explosives, the pyrotechnics in the middle of the film. Um, and then there's kind of a denouement and then the a, a substantial portion of the final portion. It's probably like an hour of the courtroom drama, I'd say, um, yeah. at the end where it is it pretty much has nothing to do with the bomb itself but has to do more with the figure of Louis Strauss and the revoking of Oppenheimer's security clearance which seems like a very kind of niche very unimportant event in the grand scheme of things um but I think that's by design uh but essentially there's a mock kind of uh, mock trial where Oppenheimer is put on the stand and, and not given really a fair um, a fair say. There isn't really due process. Uh, the people are kind of on and meant and there to represent Strauss's interests um, and are there just to kind of grill Oppenheimer because everything's going into the public record to essentially get a bunch of people to say, very inflammatory things that they can't be held accountable for because they're not actually in a court of law. Um, and so he ends up, you know, having his friends and colleagues and everyone who was essentially involved with the actual process come in and speak either on his behalf or uh, in favor of, of Strauss. Most of the people were on his side, I would say. Um, but it does end up being kind of a circus um, and pretty much everybody, I think, backs him, except for a few of the people who are pro-hydrogen bomb, which is a whole other subplot we haven't really talked about, uh, but it's yeah. essentially the kind of disengagement from the military community that he ends up falling into. Uh, and then you have uh, Kitty's moment of uh, glory where she kind of defends him and calls out the the lawyer on the other side for screwing up some of the grammar uh, it is kind of anticlimactic i'd say from from that character i think probably could have done without that but um yeah i think you it's, always uh... say this about the female <laughs> characters in movies i you think no always not say the best. <laughs> no one goes over i feel like he tra- he knows it he's self-conscious about it and then he just makes it worse <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> by like purposely yeah. trying to put them at the front and center he ends up I, he, he, yeah it's it one of those things where um have you heard the saying, you don't go to the hardware store for milk, you know? I have it's not heard like, that, but I, I understand the sentiment. You, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, 
you don't go to Hemingway for, you know, really well-written female characters. You don't go to Nolan for the same, you know, like it's okay that people have their limitations. And I wish that he just kind of wore it a little more where he's like, yeah, Yeah. I'm not sexist. I just, yeah, I don't write women. Well, it's okay. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, an interesting yeah, one. That, um, it's like the first two hours of the movie, it's this engineering project, race against the Nazis, with Oppenheimer as the quarterback and chief architect. And yeah, it's it's almost like a weird, it's almost like a problem solving movie, which is kind of interesting, but in terms of like, the socialization aspect, managing the egos, managing the project, all the different stressors that come up, his personal life, his background, him wanting to get his all these kind of things. And then the, the last third of the movie is this kind of like rhetorical battle of titans of their day at, in a, in a, court and court adjacent setting where these these kind of grievances that are you know brought up before congress and uh these atomic energy commission roundtable meetings where they're talking about the arms race and the cold war and the soviets and then you kind of get all the stuff about like oppenheimer being you know like victimized with these military people who are not really undergroves, but kind of undergroves, but really have it out to get them because they're suspicious of his kind of communist dalliances. And so they're kind of the Casey Affleck's character and his like right-hand guy are also other villains that are just really one note and not sadistic, but kind of like clearly one-sided, you know, just think he's just like a red commie who doesn't have any business with security clearance. And so, yeah, it's kind of a, watching it, it doesn't feel like an abrupt shift, but kind of reflecting on it, it it creates a certain perspective that I think Nolan has about this historical figure that I don't necessarily agree with. And that perspective is, you know, this guy uh, was the person who allowed us to well us the u.s you know the power to like end this war arguably and then also you know for an encore created nuclear energy that is now powering a lot of our you know appliances and look at what you know the institutions, how they victimized him in the latter half of his life. And it's kind of a tragedy in that respect. And I just, I don't know. It kind of seemed like more of a defense of Oppenheimer than I was anticipating. Did you get that too? I don't know. I feel, I feel like this is the most, it's a much more straightforward biopic than people give it credit for. I think it adapts the, like the source material from what I've heard, like pretty much to a T. I I think the interesting thing about the movie and about Oppenheimer is how like blank of a slate he actually was and kind of what an interesting puzzle piece his actual character was 
in the world. Like I think with the other kind of major biopics I think of when I think of at least movie wise in terms of like genius scientists from the, the wars or like the mid, you know, the 20th century are like the Hawking and Turing biopics. Um, and those are both about like very individual people with very strong individual global perspectives and kind of legacies. Whereas I think throughout the film, you kind of see like even towards the end when he has the you know, conversation with Teller, Oppenheimer never really had strong opinions on anything, which is what makes him so interesting and so easy to kind of cast our own persuasions and our own thoughts onto. Um, everyone around him, I think, is meant to be more of a like a full character. And even though he was, you know, obviously brilliant and smarter than you know anyone that we can probably think of he wasn't you know he wasn't like einstein right he didn't come up with his own theories like the black hole stuff is interesting but he really was uh like a lab director which is such an unsexy title like he was just such a polymath and he could deal with so many problems but i think that the the interesting thing about it is that the the atomic bomb and kind of the consequences and the like essentialist conflict of like man destroying itself, which is what you know, everything about the atomic bomb and science and everything from you know Jurassic Park to all these stories about how humanity is the biggest threat to itself comes back to is that you can't really capture that in an individual person. It's beyond the reach of an individual character, and particularly so in a character who didn't necessarily have strong convictions about anything in general. I think that's what makes him so fascinating because we so want him to be some sort of zealot and either, you know, very jingoistic and pro bomb and very, you know, to stand by his creation or we want him to be completely apologetic. And I think, that, you know, it, it does lean towards that in the movie with, especially with the ending. But I think in reality, he's somewhere in the middle, which makes it, I think a very interesting interrogation of a character and a film, but not necessarily the kind of straightforward picture that you would expect. Uh, I kind of disagree. I feel like it is, and maybe this is historically accurate. So maybe it's not like a, like a, I don't know, renunciation of a Nolan's uh, way of casting this person's life, but it kind of feels like he is remorseful, you know, very remorseful and sympathetic in the last hour and then tries to then like reverse the trajectory of destruction that he has set the world on by trying to lead a deterrence effort of like not amassing a nuclear arsenal or, you know, developing the hydrogen bomb or necessarily i mean he doesn't squash it but he doesn't he doesn't accelerate it um and trying to like dismantle los alamos after after the end of the war um it i think if nolan had executed what you're saying because i think what you're saying is right he is he is an ambiguous like he's hard to pin down in terms of what he actually believed and what he what he deeply felt. Well, that's the thing is I don't think he actually believed anything. Like, I think we want to be able to prescribe some sort of underlying belief system 
that is very coherent to just people in general. And I think especially so famous people who may be the most influential people of all time. I just don't think that's how humans work. But I think particularly people with such a vast understanding of, you know, so many subjects, I don't think he necessarily had a cohesive view. And it certainly changed, you know, throughout the course of his life. I think if you're right, that would have made a more interesting movie and a more interesting kind of a character portrayal rather than the duality of like, I'm going to do this rah, rah, go America chant and everyone's going to love me. And then I'm going to tell, you know, President Truman that I feel like I have blood on my hands, you know, like, I feel like the depiction is pretty, pretty dualistic and black and white. And he feels, he does feel the weight of it. Whereas I think it would have been more interesting and maybe more historically accurate. You could argue if Nolan had depicted the like, um lack of the the dispassion maybe that maybe that Oppenheimer felt I don't know I don't even know if it's dispassion I think it's more like his emotional maturity or at least his understanding of the actual effects of what he was doing were beyond his grasp at the time which is understandable because the consequences are so vast they would have been beyond any individual person's grasp Mm-hmm. But I think that, yeah, sure, he's remorseful after the fact. I mean, after you see the destruction of the atomic bombs, I think a lot of people came to that same conclusion. I don't think that's necessarily interesting. I think the fact that he comes about it in the same way like ordinary people would, like someone who's that smart and that brilliant emotionally ends up in the same place that just a normal everyday person would i think that's the interesting part not necessarily for the better but i think it i think he does display that on screen in some way i think that the movie would have had a lot more power if they had uh really shown the destruction that it caused what what type of power do you want it to have like do you want it would you have wanted people to come away from the movie being like the atomic bomb was bad like is that what would have been like the most satisfying takeaway or like lesson to be learned from this story i wouldn't want anybody to come away i think it was a as how do you make oppenheimer a more interesting character so it doesn't really have to do with how do you feel about the atomic bomb or how do you feel about u.s aggression or any of that or world war ii it's more for me to better understand the layers of complexity of this character, it would have helped me see the destruction that he felt like he was responsible for to a certain degree, you know? Right. But did um, he actually feel I wasn't, responsible in that way? Nolan seems to think so in that scene where he goes to Truman's office and says, I feel like I have blood on my hands, sir. And Truman's like, get this crybaby out of my office, you know? Yeah, I just feel like that's not that revelatory. Like, I think pretty much everybody who had anything to do with the bomb in any movie or film or literature since has said something similar. If no, not more... I mean, they did, a, they did some interviews with the pilots who dropped the bomb, and they were very utilitarian about it, you know? They were like, no, we don't feel guilt. Why would we feel guilt, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't have any... That is... Of the problems I have with this movie, I think the 
I don't necessarily think that Oppenheimer is presented as some sort of hero. If anything, I think he's presented as some sort like kind of an infantile individual who's kind of like, like from another Nolan movie, like whose reach exceeds his grasp and who can't really ever comprehend what we're doing until after it's done. I don't know if he comes across as a hero, but he definitely comes across as a victim to me because of the last third of the movie. And because of how heavy they make Louis Strauss into the villain, you know? Do you, what do you, in real life, rather than the film, do you, what would you characterize Oppenheimer as? Complicated. More complicated than the film gives me credit for, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, I kind of see him as courageous and malevolent somehow, you know? Yeah. Or, um, yeah, I don't know. So let's get into the problems you had with the movie, if any, or what's your review of the movie? Did it, did it really work for you as kind of a, as a film or were there flaws or did you love it? Did you hate it? I think the first two thirds worked really well. I was at the time, I thought the last third dragged a bit, but it's, I think the third that's given me the most food for thought in the aftermath of the film, just because it's so discordant that I have had a lot of time thinking about what was the objective and kind of focusing this, you know, universally known and kind of, the a story with such wide-ranging consequences around such an inconsequential event, both two inconsequential events, the kind of revoking of the security clearance and the denial of Strauss's uh, uh, candidacy for uh, the cabinet. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it interesting? On the one hand, you have a, a weapon that has never been invented before that wreaks more destruction in a, a 20 second time frame than an entire war's worth, right? And has generational impacts uh, as kind of like consequential. And then the plot of this movie decides to kind of like make that equal in terms of consequences within the world, the world of the film as like what you're saying, a security clearance and a cabinet nomination, you know? But I think that, I mean, maybe I'm reading into this, but I think that's on purpose, is it not? Like, I think... No, it is. It is. Uh, that's the point I'm making. It is. but And it's kind of, it's a bizarre choice almost. Like, the way I see it is, like, I think that, like, human beings, even the most brilliant, or in the case of Strauss, the most conniving individuals on the planet, only have, like, they are human, right? They have a finite capacity for imagination and for emotion and the things that matter to Oppenheimer, you know, the, the actual pain he gets from the atomic bomb consequences is mirrored and he can only go so high in his emotion that he feels that same sort of pain when, you know, his ex-lover commits suicide, which obviously is a personal tragedy, but is not quite on the same range as, you know, 200,000 people dead. And then is the same as this revoking of his security clearance, which causes his whole you know, family personal grief that is obviously very inconsequential. And same for Strauss, right? Individual kind of throwaway lines end up consuming five years of this 
man's life to get payback for someone who's in charge of, you know, hydro bomb strategy during the Cold War. Like, I think that the point is to show that these people are acting on human scales and dealing with problems that are so beyond what they can comprehend that it's it's almost like a, a farce. Right. What kind of film do you think Nolan was interested in making? Or what kind of film do you think, like, he did make, you know? Like, what was he most interested in this movie? I mean, I think, like um, a lot of his films, I think he's probably most interested in the internal suffering of the two main characters. Um, and I like, think he like kind a of sees himself in both. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, um, I'm trying to ascertain whether this movie has the depth that a lot of people seem to think it does, or whether it's kind of a clumsy execution of maybe a much better movie that Nolan had in his head, you know? Well, I think this is the brilliant part of just straight adapting the book. (laughs) Because I feel like if you if you did something like this and then you like really layered on the themes, it would be like too on the nose. And especially with something as like well known and ingrained in the human, or at least the American psyche, as the atomic bomb, it would have been like I think a little much. So I think the fact that he leaves it as like essentially what I think is just a straight adaptation leaves a lot of space for interpretation in a way that I find quite novel in modern Hollywood where you either get beat over the head with themes or it's like an action you know superhero movie where there's really no themes and it's purposely not leaving anything vague other heroes and villains I feel kind of beat over the head with themes in this movie interesting because we don't ever get any sort of like a, a, a second of a sympathetic moment with straws or with t- teller we kind of do uh th- i feel like there's all of these characters that if they disagree with oppenheimer they then get painted as villainous and then those who have oppenheimer's back are the heroes and it it with the way that the dialogue is written and the music and just the moments that certain characters have, we are made to feel uplifted when his wife comes into that and kind of court adjacent interrogation room and kind of like stands by her husband and makes a fool of the opposing attorney. And we're made to like hate Teller when he tries to shake Oppenheimer's hands when he's getting that kind of medal from the president because, you know, his wife's like, you didn't back my husband, you know? Uh, we're, we're made to like cheer when Strauss gets his just desserts, you know, when he doesn't get the cabinet nomination. And that whole the Alden Ehrenreich's character, who's kind of the PR person for Strauss, who's supposed to be working for Strauss, becomes this audience avatar of being like, well, I guess the truth got out. And it's a very like pointed kind of dialogue. It's like, what? Why do we need this? Why is this guy here? Like, I already get what's going on. Why do we need this kind of like Sorkin-esque 
and he and here's what I mean, you know? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think don't you think that there's a bit more to it? Like I think towards the end when Kitty says to him, like, why are you kind of tarring and feathering yourself feathering yourself? You know they're never gonna, you know, disassociate you from the bomb. Like, is that your goal to like become a hero in the eyes of future generations? Um, and he right. kind of so the, admits to that being the case. And so I kind of right. took that as like, we as especially like future generations want to project these black and white interpretations of individual people and conflicts and outcomes. But I think the point of that is kind of to show that that's not really the case and we can simplify it as much as we want. It's never going to fit into you know, a nice tidy box. And we're never going to know if deterrence worked or not until we either wake up one day and the whole world is dead or, you know, we, we are s- some future point where nuclear bombs are no longer an existential threat. Yeah, I don't know if those two ideas have enough connection in terms of the plot. I do, I really do like that moment though that you mentioned where she kind of challenges them on and you kind of have this realization as an audience member, you're like, oh, he's playing the long game, you know? Like he is willing to undergo this kind of kangaroo court because he wants it to be in the public record that he, you know, objected to certain things about how, you know, the arms race progressed after the war, right? That's my understanding. Yeah. Um, what do you think is notable I mean, maybe the world looks different if Oppenheimer becomes the chief like cheerleader for the hydrogen bomb or like amassing a nuclear weapons arsenal. Um, and maybe that's to his credit. Um, yeah, I, I, I just kind of feel like the, the movie was a little too just holistically sympathetic. And maybe if Nolan were on this podcast, uh, he would say... Well, yeah, it's subjective from Oppenheimer's perspective, you idiot. And I'm like, well, yeah, but there were parts that weren't, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. So where would you, so are we ready to to switch over to more of a Nolan discussion? Yeah. So I just looked it up. This movie is currently, guess, okay, all-time movies. Guess where this movie is currently ranked in the IMDb Top 250. Meaning uh, the ratings of people on IMDb rating it? Yes, yes. Where is it ranked in, in all of IMDb's All time, yeah. What? Uh, so the I first mean, thing is that it's, it's on the list. Yeah, yeah. It's weird that it's <laughs> even on the list. I don't know, 47? 31. This is rated what? as one of the top 35 movies in the history of cinema. Oh, my God. IMDb. Um, that must just be recency bias. Just ahead of Back to the Future and Spirited Away. Yeah, that's got to be recency bias. With the bias. same rating as Star Wars Episode Four. Not just beautiful city of God. <laughs> um, I kind of feel like one last one last. There's a there's a great video essay that I watched from a guy named Tom Vander Linden who. Is like YouTube handles like stories of old, and uh, I'd encourage folks to to watch it. I'll put the link in the in the show notes, as they say. Um, but it just talked about how if they wanted to have 
if Nolan wanted to have some more kind of like objective discussion or, you know, something extra, another lens from which to view this guy's life, um, but wanted to keep the subjectivity of Oppenheimer's worldview, he could have done it in the black and white, like Strauss scenes, right? Because those were meant to be outside of Oppenheimer's, you know, subjective worldview. I think that that would have elevated the movie if there had been more the black and white scenes being less kind of like a here comes the villain to take down our our hero or or just like a strict historical account of you know the events of it and more of i don't know a wider range of perspectives about how to interpret this very hard to interpret individual you know yeah, so that's my that's last fair. thing just on, on that and then we can get into the nolan stuff Wow, so people really like this movie. Apparently <laughs> so. Apparently, I mean, to be fair, people just really like Christopher Nolan, I think. He has like three movies in the top 30. This is actually, it's 31, but there's two other Christopher Nolan movies ahead. Three other Christopher Nolan movies ahead of that. So right. take, that, take that as you will. So, um, yeah, where do we start with Nolan? I mean, you know, I know I've been hard on this movie. Um, but I am a big Nolan fan, you know, like I like his work for sure. Um, Inception is probably in my top 20 movies. Well, ever. you and IMDb, which has it at 14. So there you go. Uh, the movie fucking rocks. <laughs> like It's just so much fun. You know, it gets a lot of shit, which does not comport with the ratings on IMDb. But I feel like a lot yeah. of people really dislike Inception, which I mean, it has problems, but it's like, talk about, I don't know. You just, you don't see that movie. I feel like it doesn't really have any precedent and it hasn't had anything since, you know? That's the that thing about Nolan is like, there are just people, there aren't people doing the things he's doing on the spectacle and the stage that he's doing them. Yeah, so Which is pretty amazing about, for like a modern filmmaker. Let me tell you about my movie going experience. So again... I'm not really sure where I stand on this movie. I have to watch it again and kind of like think on it. And there are parts I enjoyed, parts I didn't. There's kind of like, I don't think it's, a, it's certainly not a perfectly executed movie. I don't Is this because you're a commie? Is you like pro, pro commie? <laughs> it's because I've joined the Communist Party. I just saw the Communist Manifesto. I'm like, where do I get more of this Karl Marx guy? Why, isn't, why aren't more people talking about him in the political arena? Um, so I know it's hard in this movie, but the movie-going experience of any Nolan movie is always fantastic. And it was for this as well. There's three hours, but I didn't feel the, the, the length too much, which is impressive. I sat down, and it was a packed theater. Every seat kind of was filled. Were people you know, like and for... bouncing their feet on the gym floor like <laughs> yeah. in the movie? Yeah. I feel like for any movie to pack a theater in 2023 is impressive. And so I sit down and then there's four. They don't call it I'm in, dude. Come on. <laughs> Continue. Continue. Oh <laughs> and so I sit down and there's four. Um, I don't want to call them douchebags, Morgan. I want to be more generous with my language and with my immediate judgments of people. But for the sake of just concision and clarity, there are four douchebags sitting Fair next enough. to me on Fair my right. Enough. Yeah. And they were just talking constantly before the movie. 
and then during the trailers, oh, and I was like, this is going to be Dude, such this a is, miserable This is a experience. major problem with film becoming just like a blockbuster only, or like movie theater going, a blockbuster only thing. People don't yeah. know how to go to the movies. They don't understand. Yeah. They don't understand etiquette anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we live in a barbarian world. <laughs> so... Um, I'm like, this is going to be miserable. I'm already hating this. They're going to ruin this movie for me. I'm going to be so upset. Morgan, the opening scene started, and for three hours straight, I did not hear a peep from any of these four guys. Good for them. And I was like, how many directors can pull that off? Seriously. Probably very, probably Tarantino, maybe Scorsese, depending on the movie, and Noel. And... I was so impressed by that, you know, uh, the, and I think there's something to how captivating his movies are, even if they're, even if the dialogue's kind of clumsy and even if there's holes in the plot, there's something visually stunning about every single one of his movies. I feel like it's undeniable, you know? No doubt. I mean, he always brings spectacle. Even Tenet in that movie is garbage, but like, that was, dude, that I was, that was totally just spectacle. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would totally watch that again. I wish that were a silent film. That would have been interesting. He's just like, you know what? I'm going to make a silent film. And he basically did. Sense, but... It was basically un- inaudible. So it's essentially <laughs> yeah. the same. So like, yeah. Anyways, I just share the anecdote because I think it really does capture something that is um, a trademark of Nolan that, that, is, that is almost unreachably hard to do, you know? When, it, when was the last time you watched Interstellar? Good question, dude. Um, it's been years, but I will say one of my favorite movie-going experiences ever was watching Interstellar in, in the theaters. I don't think I saw it in IMAX. I saw Dunkirk in IMAX, and that was another one of my favorite movies. But Interstellar, it was like the, the, the sound in Interstellar was one of the best, I think, like immersive um, scores I've ever seen in a movie. I... You know, I'd seen space movies before in 2001 Space Odyssey is like incredible, but the technology that he had at his disposal and how he used it in Interstellar was so stunning that I was just totally captivated. And uh, Matt Damon popping up and like that surprise was great. So yeah, anyways, I had a great time watching it. Upon rewatching it on smaller screens with like a shitty projector on my laptop, doesn't have the same magic, but right. I still do like that movie. Yeah. I think I think one of the things I think IMAX screens get too much credit for the visuals and not enough for the sound. Totally. I feel like at least sixty percent of the the actual experience is the sound that they have on those things. Yeah, it's unreal. Um, what's your uh, so? I mean, we could we could go through. So Nolan, I mean, just real briefly, I'll list. Started his career with a movie called Following which is super low budget. This guy who kind of like follows uh, people and then kind of gets wrapped up in this love triangle, um, you know, kind of heist movie thing, um, which was done with really low budget. But certainly it seems like some of his themes are um, there even in his first film. And then uh, I believe his next film is Memento, which is a huge step up from the, you know, the, the really small budget he had for that guy pierce and memento i feel like puts him on the scene and it's probably arguably one of his best films if not his best film even though it's not my favorite you know 
Um, and so Memento, you know, plays with time, kind of this like murder mystery told in reverse. And it's just incredibly impressive. Insomnia, I haven't seen, actually. Have you seen Insomnia? I have seen Insomnia. Not in a while, but I did see it. It's it very, it feels very unknown like I, I enjoyed it, but yeah. it does not feel like a, it's the least Nolan movie of all the movies I've seen. I've seen, I think I've even seen Followings. I think I've seen them all. I would say okay. it feels the least Nolan of all of them. I'll have to, uh, yeah, I'll have to watch it because I want to, I'm a completist, you know, I'd like to, like to watch all of his movies. Well, you're here in um, like two weeks, dude. We might have to, we can bust it out. That might be, we might have to see what we can do um insomnia so kind of like a like a like a a cop i don't know who done it what i mean al pacino robin williams interesting cast um anyhow he goes from insomnia which is like what set in alaska yeah the, it's like it's not exactly time but the whole like gimmick is that it's sunny all all day because it's at sure. the arctic circle and so he starts to oh interesting go he went insane. he went the daylight route rather than the nighttime route exactly yeah which is an interesting choice yeah uh then he goes of course you know big blockbuster batman begins kind of argue reinvents a genre or a a take on how you can do a superhero movie um and then that leads to the three batman movies uh, which actually are interspersed with a couple other movies, but um, the Batman trilogy, I feel like Dark Knight puts him on a whole nother level in terms of notoriety and just, you know, impressive filmmaking. Um, so the Prestige and Inception are in between uh, two of the Batman movies. It goes Batman Begins, Prestige, Dark Knight, Inception, Dark Knight Rises. Prestige about kind of like dueling obsessive magicians and in terms of like such a perfectly constructed like plot and film I feel like the prestige is up there you know for sure one of my all-time favorite films um Inception kind of this dreamy heist movie just kick ass it's like you know James Bond uh plus magic realism it's like Borges meets James Bond which is quite fun. Mm, that's a cool thing. Um, Interstellar. Every major director have to has to have a space movie, you know. And so uh, that was his kind of a time traveling, interesting space opera. Uh, Dunkirk. Every director has to have a World War Two movie. Um, Tenet, sci-fi, garbage, and then Oppenheimer. Um, what's your favorite? What's your favorite uh, Nolan movie? I think it's probably a tie or at least close between The Prestige and Dunkirk. Hmm. I need to watch Dunkirk again. I just have been hesitant to go back to it because it was so great in IMAX. Just doesn't hmm. seem like it's going to... You haven't seen it since? you saw. It no, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I have not hmm. been in a circumstance where I'm like, this is the screen or the circumstance to watch that type of movie again. But I should. I should do it. So... Um, Inception's my favorite, but I'm not going to make it. It's not his best. So just caveat. Um, it's my favorite. I think Dunkirk is kind of undeniably his best film. It's very um, good. And they did a Hollywood roundtable with like the cast of, uh, of uh, Oppenheimer and the cast had their favorite movies. And they asked Nolan too. And Nolan said his favorite is Dunkirk, which I, I think makes a ton of sense. Um, and here's why. 
it plays to all of his strengths and none of his weaknesses. And so I think it's like it executes on all the things he excels at and then doesn't expose any of his uh, vulnerabilities and flaws, you know? You're basically just saying there's no women in it. <laughs> Dude, that's a, yeah. That's a actually an apt observation. He doesn't have to write any, <laughs> any women characters. <laughs> he found, yeah, wow. He found a way to make a movie without a single woman in it and therefore you know uh doesn't uh doesn't expose any of his clumsy uh female dialogue i feel like he just gets in his head he's like oh this is a woman better write it completely differently or else they're gonna find me out it's like no dude (laughs) (laughs) but it's um it's it's like a thriller it's it's exciting he gets to do his time thing but the time thing isn't just a gimmick it actually is kind of it elevates the tension and the, and the thrilling aspect of it be, yeah. by his interspersing timelines. It's just um, clever enough. It doesn't take away, like, make yeah. it confusing like some of his other films yeah. with the time stuff, but it does enough to make it not just like a war film. To like, it's like you, you can you it. can you can pay attention to it or yeah. you can forget about it. Exactly. Yeah. Work. Yeah. 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 Um, like incredible performances. Yeah. It's a couple so... absolutely incredible like scene stealing shots that I can like I haven't yeah. seen it in years and I can still like vividly imagine like the bombs yeah. on the beach and totally you know the drowning and stuff yeah it's so damn exciting and just perfectly crafted and it's yeah. so I feel like it's the quintessential British film because and I think someone else has made this point before so I'm stealing somebody who's smarter than me the point where Dunkirk is so British because it feels like a victory, but it's a defeat. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> it's a classic classic draw, dude. All of the British and the freaking ties. Okay. Yeah. It's like it's like a clear loss, you know. They're fleeing, they're retreating. But somehow because they survived, it feels like a victory. Um, I mean that's how it felt in real time, supposedly, you know. Yeah. The greatest and uh he gets to do his thing of of like really anal retentive historical accuracy in terms of like actually buying yeah buying using the, the same boats that uh, were used and all that and it actually works and elevates the movie so i just i cryo freezing like... mark rylance so he was he was around <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's interesting because when i think about when i think about nolan i think when he taught it feels like he projects that he wants to be Kubrick, but he actually wants to be Spielberg. You know? That's a great... He's definitely somewhere in the middle. I feel like Dunkirk was probably his most Kubrickian. Is that true? Let's think. I don't know. I feel like Kubrick is more experimental and weird and absurd Yeah, maybe Nolan Inception is, is ever most willing Kubrickian. to be. You know? Yeah. It's a good question, actually. Maybe Oppenheimer's is most Kubrickian. But, okay, so that's an interesting point. So in Oppenheimer, uh, I kind of feel like, and some of the reviews, I think, picked up on this, too. Oh, you know what? I have a review, actually. I have this quote I wanted to read, too. It's from Adam Naiman's review on The Ringer of Oppenheimer. And uh, he's, he's talking about Nolan. He says, even when he was literally making a movie about dreams, his mise-en-scene remained chastely geometric and orderly, more like M.C. Escher than Hieronymus Bosch. 
Even when he reaches for literal horror movie effects in Oppenheimer, the effect is weirdly feeble, neither subtle enough for genuine artistry nor scary enough for cheap sensationalism. Isn't that like absolutely accurate? I think that's fair. I think that's why, like you were saying, the historical stuff plays to his strengths because you need that attention to detail. I just think he needs realism, you know? He I mean, he's best. I think his biggest weakness, which is like really overselling it because I think he, you know, even his biggest weakness is, you know, a strength to most people is his writing. It's always been his writing. And so I think when he's working from source material, that kind of really allows him to then focus on all the stuff he's otherworldly at, like the spectacle and totally. the scene stealing. Um, but I think that's true for like most of, but that's why, I mean, Dunkirk, they basically just like, he was like, we're not going to have a lot of talking. <laughs> we're going <laughs> to yeah. base this on this thing that happened. And so I think like most of the films where he doesn't have to place it all on his exposition is usually best. And even with his exposition, I mean, like the prestige has some amazing lines and the whole thing is very intricate but it's intricate in a way that non-human you know like the plot of the prestige is amazing because it's so perfectly crafted not because it's so emotionally poignant yeah i agree i think prestige uh is also a perfectly cast film in the sense right. that I don't know, maybe you could argue David Bowie <laughs> like doesn't need to be. I there, thought he was but awesome. I, thought it was fine. I will stand by I, David Bowie in that I, role. I, I thought he was fine too. I'm just, I thought he was fine. Um, I he was fine. I said he was awesome. <laughs> you <laughs> know what? Rich. I think he was great. His grasp. <laughs> I like, no, I liked, uh, I liked Bowie and uh, Prestige. So I, I think that films like cannot perfectly cast. And so you don't notice I'd, I'd have to rewatch it to see if there's actually any any actual clunky dialogue but i if it's there i don't notice it because christian bale and hugh jackman are so absolutely terrific points such great performers but also such great competitors in terms of like stealing each other's scenes and like you just it's 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 their dynamic like really works but sometimes nolan casts people where like the dynamic falls apart it's like interstellar great I don't know if it's a great movie. It's a movie I like for sure. But McConaughey and Hathaway, no chemistry there, you know? I think you make a great, like, I think somebody like, that's, that is where he differs and fails in comparison to Spielberg. Spielberg gets the emotion. Like, Nolan, like, creates emotion mathematical way, like you were saying, right? It's like, he's like, this music is going to pair with this type of scene and we're going to feel emotion, where Spielberg just understands emotion and realizes that we don't necessarily have to be kind of manipulated. Not that he doesn't do that, but it's just a very much more sincere version of emotion. And so I do think a lot of that comes down to how the actors are able to take that material and yeah. play it on screen. And fortunately for Nolan, lots of amazing actors want to be in his film, so it ends up working yeah. out. But I do, yeah, I mean, I think Tenet suffered from that as well. I think the acting in that movie is not as great, but I also think because it would have been really tough to, I think, like, the actors in that movie, like, I think there's a quote from, um, shoot, what's his name? The guy from Twilight, Robert Pattinson, who was saying, like, mm -hmm. I literally didn't have any idea what was going on in that film. Like, he gave me the stuff out of, <laughs> out of context, and, like, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be laughing or crying. It's so, like, I think he definitely didn't do the actors any favors in that one either. So, Pattinson was saying, 
you know, Nolan, it was part of his work process to keep us in the dark. And that's what he was. So just a script showed up and I did the lines and then I had no feedback. That's what he was saying. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, yeah. And then he was like, he was saying like, he watched it back and he was like, Ooh, I did not act that right. That was not the, the, I, the tone that I was supposed to be portraying. I love Pattinson. But he, he was like, I think he was, he, so Pattinson in that movie is like that's a fun action movie let it be a fun action movie yeah for sure that's what he's going for 100 percent. he's probably the most fun part of that movie too oh for sure i just um i think that nolan is kind of too smart for his own good sometimes it works out prestige is a complicated like really taut really perfectly crafted movie and it really works memento really works dunkirk actually i'll put that to the side for a moment uh, Inception mostly really works. So I think it like, it does pay off. However, with Dunkirk, it's such a simple premise. These guys need to get out of here. Yeah. And he gets to focus all of his energy on the just visceral detail of how do you get out of a place you don't want to be, you know? So I'm like curious, like when Nolan... You can almost see it from here. (laughs) It's like, if Nolan were to devote that to, instead of these like really complicated sci-fi movies, if he were to devote that to uh, a bank robber movie, would he just make the best bank robber movie? This is what I was going to say. I I wrote down like three questions for you. One of them was going to be, what type of movie do you want to see? Nolan do because I know he wants to do a James Bond but he's already done like five James Bond movies like sure James Bond the character wasn't in them but they were James Bond movies <laughs> Inception's a James Bond movie like uh, I think Dark Knight is arguably a James Bond movie there's like a he even has like yeah. a Q in uh, Morgan Freeman you know like totally. there's a, yeah, I mean yeah yeah, yeah, he's, yeah done, and, and he's done some James Nolan, Bond the Tenant is basically a very confusing James Bond movie as well yeah totally Agreed. He doesn't need to do a Bond movie, but it'd be fun if he did. Um, but it wouldn't be my top choice. Um, I don't want to see a Nolan Western movie. I feel like he would screw up a Western. I don't think that'd be that. interesting, though. It would be interesting to throw him into mm-hmm. something that's like defies form. Like, what what type of film is the least formulaic? Like, what would be the? I think westerns movie? are super formulaic. Like what? Like or like? Okay, maybe that. Maybe like throw him in something that's so formulaic that he would almost have to defy structure. Like, what if he tried to do, like, a rom-com? Like, it would just be, like, so tropey filled yeah. that he would almost be, like, like, would he just mess with time? Like, would it be, like, a Benjamin Button love story? Like, what, what would happen? It pr- probably it probably would be just Benjamin Button, yeah. It probably would be something like that. Um, I I just want to see him do, like, more heist movies. I think he excels in heist movies. I, I think heist would be pretty sweet. Yeah. Um... I feel like if you put him in space again, he's just going to get weird and it's not really going to work. He's going to be like, that black hole was super accurate. We're going to be like, cool, dude. (laughs) (laughs) We're in a big black hole. Oh, the worst day. I'm I'm sure those like 20 physicists that understand the cutting edge of that were super thrilled. (laughs) I I bet you he got his executive producers together before Oppenheimer and is like, so basically – if we're wanting to do this properly, we would build a bomb that had like a 1% chance of like setting the atmosphere on fire because that's what they were dealing with. 
what do we need for that? <laughs> How do we make that happen? Yeah, I think what if you what if we put him in like like a like based on some very famous jewel heist, but he has to recreate it. Yeah, that'd be dope. Or maybe a heist that I, yeah. we don't know how they got away with it, and so he gets to kind of use his imagination a bit. Maybe a maybe like a Indiana Jones movie, like Escape Escape from Alcatraz, like a re, like a remake of Escape from Alcatraz or something. That'd be Indiana cool. Jones movie would be cool, like a like a breakout. Um, yeah, you know what? He would probably do. You've seen The Great Escape with Stephen Queen. Yeah, that would be pretty sweet. Something a remake like that. of that with yeah. Nolan. I think would be I like 10, of 10 out of 10. Yeah. Or just like, what would be another, like, could he do like a James Cameron, like ocean movie? What would that look like? I don't think ocean movies are interesting. But I feel like he'd do something nuts. Like what would be the craziest shit you could do in the ocean? He'd be doing it, right? That's true. But I feel like Nolan would take a boring, he'd do like a submarine movie or something, you know? Have I told you my we're like ninety minutes in now, so I don't think anyone's going to be listening. But I, uh, <laughs> no, I, get, I, I get really no one was I listening get, at the start. I get really controversial negative. feedback about my opinion on space versus the ocean, but I feel like I, I'm correct, what? and I feel like you're on my side. Like just space is way more interesting. Like this is just yeah. in movies or just in life in in all things. Space trumps ocean. It's not close. <laughs> I didn't know this was a debate. You've had this debate <laughs> Dude, with like a lot of people. People are so pro ocean; it defies logic. I don't understand. I think space. I think space is way more interesting than ocean. Yeah, of course. Ever watch one of those videos where they're like, "Here's what's at ten thousand feet under the sea," and they like they're like, "You could fit three Empire State buildings." I'm like, "That's not that deep. <laughs> that Empire State <laughs> building is not that deep. That's not even, you're not even like floating yet if you try to get that shit into space. Like it's it drives no. me crazy." And they're like, what no, could this be way down more here? But yeah. also, the ocean, I think it's also fair to say that the ocean, it's like more useful to know more about the ocean than about space. I, I, I disagree. I feel like that was maybe true like 25 years ago when we didn't have any idea. But now we're like, okay, once you get past like a mile, there's like a couple fish and they're weird looking, but there's essentially nothing down there. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just a, it's a bunch of yeah, rock sand and darkness and pressure that will kill pretty much anything. Yeah, I guess I'm, true. I, maybe I'm not even pro space. I'm just super anti ocean. <laughs> <laughs> you would not you would not do well dating in San Diego, my friend. Dude, I know, man. Sorry, man. Dude, it it, it it drives me crazy. People are like, "Nah, ocean's so much cooler. What could be down there?" I'm like, "Versus space." Like, you've got to be kidding me. You're like, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's good. Yeah, that should be your whole dating profile. Uh, space versus ocean. What's your, what side are you on? And anyone who says ocean, I just give them shit until they block me. <laughs> You're a moron. I feel like it is a winning argument. Yeah, the the space argument okay so i'm looking at nolan's now holy shit 8.7 imdb for interstellar what people love i don't know if it's the overlap between like the people who use imdb are probably like 20 to 25 year old males but like that demographic very big nolan fans huge nolan fans yeah i will say i need to give of all the movies i've ever watched interstellar of, of nolan's gave me the most bitter taste in my mouth mostly because i just absolutely hated the book case love is the answer stuff 
at the end. Oh, you did not like Interstellar. <laughs> I thought that the spectacle and the first two thirds of the movie were incredible, and then the last third was so bad that it I just have refused to watch it again. But I now that I know that that's coming, I think I would enjoy it a lot more. So it's on my list of things I need to watch in the in the near future. I'm gonna level with you, dude. When I was watching Interstellar in the theaters. And Anne Hathaway says that legendary line that love is the one thing that transcends time and space. Ah, dude. I was in. I was in. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it, it, it is. And I started shaking the shoulders of everybody near me. And I was like, love is he, the he, answer. He cracked it. Son of a bitch did it. But upon rewatching it, I'm like, fucking man. I feel like <laughs> that's like, like where he wants to be Spielberg, but Spielberg would never say that, you know? Like, he would never do that. Spielberg would uh, have the some sense pretty vague like, Spielberg movies, man. But he would show you, even if he would, like, he would show you and not tell you, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Um, Interstellar, there's an argument to be made that it is not a good movie. <laughs> I need to watch it. I just remember the ending being so disappointing that I like I just forego foregoed all discussion of the movie for like years. Interstellar is like a seven out of ten. But the problem is that there's an hour forty five in there that is a ten out of ten. That's the thing, is that like I remember scenes and I'm like, that's incredible. And I remember being on such a high for parts of it. I mean, it's that's just, better, yeah. So. Okay, the, the magic of Dunkirk is that it's an hour and 47 minutes long. Brilliant. And just it's just and it's almost like... Straight if, to... It's like full throttle the whole time. Yeah. Build up. It's, yeah. it's like if Nolan had an editor that's just like, sorry, man, the studio's yeah. going to cut off our budget yeah. if we put this over two hours. Mm. I kind of think every single movie of his, maybe Tenet included... Should be a banger. Actually, Tenet would still suck. <laughs> Dude, I, I legitimately could not describe like anything about the plot to that movie, and I think I saw it twice. I think with if um, I think uh, filmmakers that are more experimental or that are more absurdist or just weird or whatever, they can get away with a movie with a plot that doesn't make sense that just says kick ass something. I think it's but Nolan also can't do that like, because he actually tries to make. I think it's one of those that like do make sense problems too where it's like two comedians or like to any profession there's like super niche things once you're in it it's like rich basically comedians who become rich they have like great jokes about like rich people problems but like nobody gets them because nobody's rich i feel like tenant when they're running backwards i'm like that is probably very technically difficult but it just looks like he pressed reverse on the like the, like the vhs like it, i'm sure this was very complicated and i've heard people talk about it like who know stuff and are like that's amazing but i'm like it's just in my mind you just you did it forward and then you press reverse it just makes watch it backwards like it just doesn't come off to a normal moviegoer as impressive filmmaking do you know what would be really fun because no one's listening right now um do we i'll just say this well you think because they all lost like they are like fucking ocean rules and they like (laughs) (laughs) all the the pro we lost our pro ocean audience um, I think what would be such a fun podcast for you and me to do, or just a fun hang, would be for us to watch Tenet and just do um, what's it called when you talk over it as you as you're watching it, like a play by play. What do they call it? Like a 
I don't on know, the DVDs, you know, they have term, the yeah. like, yeah, yeah, like Anyways, a yeah overview or whatever. For us that to do that, fun. and and for us to try to like genuinely figure out, to genuinely try to explain to each other like what's going on, because <laughs> you get to the end of that movie and you're like, it's basically like capture the flag, and there's like the red team and a blue. Team. It had a it's very so it had a Transformers bonkers. two problem where I was like, I have no idea who's on what team and who is fighting who and what the goal of the fighting is at this point in time, and it's like. There's the there's the future us and the current us and there's this thing we gotta get but then there's we might die but we don't actually die and like oh my god how did this movie get made so yeah that was a real miss but I mean fair enough I I'm excited to see what he does next because I think he usually I mean that was the Tenet was after Dunkirk right is that right or was Inter- Interstellar after yeah. No, no, no. Tenet was after Dunkirk, yeah. Because I feel like he, he doesn't... I would be surprised if he did another kind of slow historical one. I feel like he needs to, like, express his crazy, like, bombastic side after he does one of these slow ones. So I'm expecting something more of a pyrotechnic show. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that as well. I mean, I'm always going to show up with the exception of being in the middle of a pandemic like Tenet was. I'm always going to show up to see whatever Nolan does, you know, yeah. on the biggest screen yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm always going to be excited for a future Nolan. Um, I just I just wish he had a co-writer, man. I wish he was still writing movies with his brother, jo- Jonathan Nolan, you know. I think we need to, what we need to do is we need to go through all the, like, real material and books that we've read recently and then, like, suggest one with really like strong plot line and like really emotionally resonant characters that he can just take and no like just drag like dr- take right off the script of the book and you know it would be better crazy you, shit yeah you know it would have been a better movie than oppenheimer to adapt um for nolan strauss, but now he can't do it strauss he already did. Where the, it's 90 percent <laughs> strauss and then 10 percent oppenheimer yeah exactly <laughs> No, he already made Oppenheimer, so it would be pointless to do it now because it would be the same movie. But um, adapting the Vonnegut story about the Barnhouse. Dude, and so the... good. There's so many stories in that book, Welcome to the Monkey House, that could be yeah. amazing movies. I'm surprised a lot of them have. I wonder if his, his like rights or his like progeny has like really strict rules on who can buy I think short stories. Nolan, so Nolan, with that source material, limiting him to an hour 45, two hours max, it's a great call. A, it's a brilliant such call. Such a great. It would be a know. very good movie. You don't need a ton of dialogue. You don't need. It would just be. That's one of those short stories where it just like once you finish it, you're like, wow, that'd be a sick movie. Like it's it just jumps yeah. off the page as like a movie, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'd watch so it. Freaking, I I was super. They were gonna make a Cats in the Cradle movie or TV show for a long time, uh, and I think that it. fell through. That is a movie that would be terrible for Nolan because it's just all ideas. And it's like super absurdist, like satire of like religion and a bunch of different things, um, like the carceral state and a bunch of stuff. Sure. That would be like the most non-Nolan. I mean, it'd be amazing to see him try to do it because it does not fit into a box at all. But uh, yeah, I think he would hate that. He would not get that book at all. I don't think. I don't think you but can you should adapt definitely Vonnegut. Read that. Oh, we should do a Vonnegut pod. I was talking. I was like, I mean, we talked. This is like we were talking about. World War Two, but like 
I found myself talking about Slaughterhouse Five quite a bit when I was discussing Oppenheimer with other people. Um, I need to reread uh, Slaughterhouse Five because I didn't really it's go super short, the right? Yeah, I didn't go into the right mindset. Um, I heard so much about Vonnegut and so much about this book in particular, and this was kind of his magnum opus that I think I had unrealistic or just different expectations, and it kind of left me a little like befuddled of right. why it was such a legendary kind of piece of American literature. Yeah. But you I should think read it again. I should read it again. And knowing more about Vonnegut and his sensibility and everything, I think I'd like it more as well. How about this, dude? I will do a live pod when you come into town. Wait, say that again. You kind of cut out a little bit. I was saying we could do a live Slaughterhouse-Five pod if you read it in the next two weeks. It's very short. I would, I'll read it again, and we could do it. Um, yeah, let me... Can I say a provisional yes? That's what I like to hear. And now that our legions of fans have heard you say it, you're kind of screwed. If you back out now, the fan mail is going to be vicious. <laughs> True. That's on top of all the anti-space mail we're going to get. Yeah. And pro-Strauss mail. We got a pro-Strauss, ocean-loving, space-hating commies in our in our mailboxes. I would feel a little bad, honestly, if I were a filmmaker making a movie that was going to be seen by millions of people where I was just, like, shitting on somebody. <laughs> kind of, not, like, somebody who's not universally reviled. Someone who's, yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some Maybe random like dude. It does yeah. seem like like Strauss's like great granddaughter turned Nolan down for like a drink sometime or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was like, "Screw you! I'm putting you in Oppenheimer as the main antagonist." They're like, "What <laughs> about the bomb?" <laughs> He's like, "Yep, <laughs> yep." Hell yeah! I think we nailed it. I mean, I the most concise. No one should take a take take one from us. Be as concise <laughs> as possible. Just get okay. to the point. You know. So our runtime of this podcast is about to equal exactly the runtime of Dunkirk in its entirety. I'd say there's so about I, as much good. If you could choose between watching Dunkirk or this, I think we know. I think we know what the right decision is. I agree. You know what I love? I love that Tarantino loves Dunkirk. Yeah, he loves it. He absolutely loves Dunkirk. Yeah, that's a cool thing. Hell yeah, We're dude. Good. We finish this off? Yeah. All right, man. Well, chat soon. Adios, Until next listeners. time, listeners. Peace out. I am become a death. Destroyer of pods. <laughs>